This is Fake Plastic Podcast, a podcast that unlocks the alchemy of Radiohead, one song, music video, or live performance at a time. My name is Savannah Wright. After the wild success of OK Computer, Radiohead was under immense pressure to provide a worthy follow-up. Several fans hoped for an OK Computer Part 2, with the same intricate, guitar-based melodies. But the band was burnt out. After years of touring and promoting their third record, Tom became ill, and Phil Selway said the band was worried that their success had turned them into a one-trick band. Plus, according to Colin Greenwood, the band felt like they needed to completely reinvent themselves after other groups began adopting the OK Computer sound. Disillusioned with rock music and feeling the genre had run its course, York turned to electronica artists like Aphex Twin. Their emphasis on sounds and textures over melody and lyrics intrigued York. So he put down his guitar, sat down at the piano, and began experimenting. The first song he wrote was Everything in Its Right Place, which would become the opening track on Kid A. That album revolutionized Radiohead's sound and was later heralded as the best album of its decade by both Rolling Stone and Pitchfork. As I was listening to it again, trying to think about it, it occurred to me you could sort of argue that Kid A is sort of Radiohead's psychedelic album, hmm. you know, and that that and they're sort of doing music history backwards. Mm-hmm. So that okay, computer is a is a kind of construct that you can easily find in seventies progressive rock. You know, it's got all these themes of alienation and technology, kind of a science fictiony feel. It's very. Uh, dark and paranoid, but the songs are big, long, expansive, sometimes multi-sectional songs yeah. that are kind of ambitious. Um, and then, if you listen to Kid A, it's so relentlessly non-linear. The songs are much more fragmented. Meet Bob Fink. Bob is the chair of the music industry minor at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music. There's actually a lot of stuff that reminded me, I didn't expect this, of Sgt. Pepper or oh, okay. you know, the Beatles circa 1967. Mm-hmm. So you'll have these obsessive drum beats just going as if the drummer's in the, all alone in the isolation booth just playing. And then on top of that, in principle, any sound mm-hmm. you can imagine. And that really reminds me of, you know, Strawberry Fields Forever. Hmm. So listening to it in that sense, yeah, you realize that they... Their response to the big success of OK Computer was, I guess, to say, well, how far can we push the experimentation? I'm not claiming that Tom York was, like, on drugs when he did it. (laughs) He might have been, but but the sonic experimentation of, of the psychedelic moment is really there. Bob has been an admirer of Radiohead since the OK Computer era. I really admired the ambition of that album. Mm-hmm. And also, Tom York's voice is just amazing, I have to say. Yeah. As someone who, you know, uh, grew up in a world of classical music, listening to a certain amount of opera and singing, just his melodic sense and the way his voice soars up, uh, was it's, uh, it stood out. In this episode, Bob will discuss the rich musical history of Kid A, found in the song Idiotech and suggest how this album became a sign of what would follow in contemporary music. Then we'll hear from another musicologist from the UCLA School of Music, Jessica Schwartz. She'll examine Pyramid Song, which was also developed during the Kid A sessions. Although recorded during the same period as Idiotech, it was not released until the following year on the band's follow-up record, Amnesiac. 
And in contrast to the Electronica videotech, Pyramid Song bears a greater resemblance to the music of jazz greats like Charles Mingus. But first, some context. Although Kid A is beloved now, listeners did not initially feel that way. When the record was released, critics complained about its fragmented style and obscured vocals. Where were the triumphant guitar solos from Paranoid Android? The climactic choruses from Karma Police? No, and I remember the critical reception, how yeah. sort of shocked people were. Right. And you can definitely tell a story about different genres at that moment, right around the turn of the millennium. Mm-hmm. You know, what it meant to have been sort of almost accidentally crowned as like the last great sort of rock band. You yeah. know, a lot of people, you know, in a sense are... Some of them are trying to get that role, but others get trapped into it. And then maybe the the consensus was, I guess, that they had done something to just ruthlessly frustrate that. Hmm. But then when you listen to it 18 years later, you're not sort of in those politics. Yeah. You know? Um, and so what you begin to hear is just how how much it sounds like guys fooling around in the studio and then you remember that they're British guys and you think of their age and you think, yeah, you know, in the very back of their mind is a kind of template that you get from, you know, songs like Tomorrow Never Knows or, you know, the kind of experimentation that is a, a pretty British thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're contextualizing it like in music history as a whole. You also mentioned in your email that analog synth revival. Was that also going on at the time? Yeah, well, uh just just a little bit of research, you sure. know, because it's it's been a long time. And it does appear that outside of the world of ambient electronica, you know, which I can talk about if you want to hear, um, guys like Johnny Greenwood and, and Tom York were really some of the first people to be caught up in this what we now realize is a big renaissance of analog synthesizer technology that, that some of the songs on, a significant number of the songs on uh, Kid A are using, you know, physical analog synthesizers, which in a way was was against the trend of the moment. Also in, in electronic dance music, where right around 2000, a lot of people were very excited about just Moore's Law, you know, the sort of mm-hmm. increase of power and decrease of expensive computers, meaning that people could trade in their old analog stuff for much more powerful computer-driven software mm-hmm. and only a very few sort of hardcore people stuck with the old uh, boxes by now those things are hip as can be and <laughs> but but at the time yeah those sounds i think would be would have been weirdly hard to place mm-hmm. in 2000 and 2001 you know that uh, now that thing sounds like the most prescient album you can imagine yeah, no, that's very true. And I'm going to come back to that um, about the prescience of it. But um, are you familiar with the story behind Idiotech? Do you think you could share it with us? Well, I know a little bit about what the sources are. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, so that, um, you know, Idiotech, if you listen to it, it's got a um, a sort of groove, a funky groove, which mm-hmm. is, was completely realized on modular synths. Mm-hmm. So all of the, you know, sort of, bass drum in air quotes and the snare in air quotes are all various noises hmm. and then there's a lot electronic stuff going on mm-hmm. then there's also a sort of slow moving chord progression uh, which is a sample of uh, an extremely rarefied electronic music piece uh, written by a composer who has has for a long time had a gig at uh, Princeton so mm-hmm. it's a 
it's got a German name. It's called Milt und Leise. Mm-hmm. Um, which means, I guess, softly and sweetly would be a way of saying it. So that's already kind of weirdly ironic. Um, But that's a quote from a 19th century opera from Tristan and Isolde. So Mm -hmm. the composer that was being sampled, Paul Lansky, was pulling a moment from one of the most famous 19th century romantic operas, Tristan and Isolde, Mm -hmm. the moment where... The lead character, one of the lead characters, Isolde, the soprano, starts what is known as her love death. So it's a very, mm-hmm. so it's like any music historian would be like, ooh, that is a heavy moment. Yeah. And she starts singing an aria that will ultimately end like five minutes later with her, you know, kind of singing herself to death. It's, it is to some extent one of those moments that people think of. She's not actually wearing the hat with the horns on her head, uh-huh. but it's the same composer. So okay. it's one of these famous moments uh, of opera where the soprano just sings and sings and goes higher and higher, kind of like Tom York, you know, mm-hmm. soaring up and then ultimately, and I won't get into the plot of the five-hour opera, sure, sure. but uh, ultimately just sort of willing herself into nothingness. So it's a really transcendental metaphysical moment. So Paul Lansky because he was a kind of computer algorithm type composer, mm-hmm. wrote a piece, an electronic piece, for, uh, I guess all there were, were analog synths when he did it, but programmed by, you know, very primitive computers mm-hmm. uh, that takes some of the the chords under that and uses them to create a kind of abstract piece. Mm-hmm. So his use of Wagner is to, like, structurally abstract a kind of way of moving the notes around and then make a modern piece. Then the guys in Radiohead just grabbed a snippet of that and looped it. Mm-hmm. And it fits right in with what they're doing because it's two people using analog synthesizers coming from completely different directions. Yeah. So it's an interesting, you know, I was listening to it, uh, trying to see. It does give you an interesting context. Um, you know, there are other songs on the album, like How to Disappear Completely, that you could literally map onto that moment. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what the end of Tristan and Isolde is. It's how to disappear completely. Yeah. How to kind of be so, I don't know, transcendental, so caught up in emotion that you just, mm-hmm. if you can't have your lover, you just die. Yeah, <laughs> right? Sometimes. And And so Idiotech, you know, has a lot of very mysterious lyrics, right? It's Ice Age coming. It's, you mm-hmm. know, there's, there's a kind of slightly apocalyptic tone to it and so if you know that i mean you never know uh there's a lot of i wouldn't call it a controversy but let's just say there's vigorous discussion in the world of talking about pop music when you grab a sample do you grab everything that comes with it Mm -hmm. you know do we assume that if some hip-hop artist samples oh i don't know uh, what would be the tackiest thing they could sample? A Barry Manilow song. <laughs> uh, does that mean they really, you have to think about Barry Manilow when you're listening to the song? Uh, huh. Sometimes when you go back and ask producers, you're like, no, man, I just like that, I like that snare drum hit. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that you could import into Kid A the entire Wagnerian apparatus. <laughs> uh, but I do think... Uh, the guys in Radiohead would would have liked you to know that they were hip enough and intellectual enough to know about Paul Lansky, yeah. the pioneering electronic computer musician. Because there's a lot of other super arty gestures in on the album. 
you know, yeah. moments where you hear these atonal string things or stuff that's pretty clearly saying, hey, we're like real musicians. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that those are all really great points. I'm glad you went back into the history of it because I was reading a little bit about the Tristan opera. And um, a lot of people mentioned that that was a very atonal chord, that Tristan chord that is being sampled, and that it put people on edge and that it wasn't resolved until the very end of the opera. Is that true? That's true. And in fact, Milt und Leise is the first words of the big aria at the end of which it will resolve. Oh, okay. So that's the moment where if you're analyzing the opera, you can say starting here, there's a piece of music which will have as its final structural gesture the resolution of the tensions of the whole opera. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, mm-hmm. You passed the music history class for sure. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's, I think that's probably, for somebody in the, in the world of art music in sort of the European tradition, yeah. that's one of the absolute kind of pivotal points of music history, mm. like what Wagner does in that opera and at the end of that opera. So, yeah, oh, really? I, I, you don't want me to go into, uh, and I don't know that I'm actually completely able to, what Lansky <laughs> does with the chord, but he does you know, effectively treat some of the chords in Wagner's opera as almost like axioms in a mathematical equation. Oh, okay. He starts from them and he begins to generalize out, like, mm-hmm. okay, Wagner took these three notes and he moved to these other three notes, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a transformation. Now, what if I did that over and over again and didn't worry about what uh, key I was in? What yeah. would I get? Uh-huh. Well, you get something that's... I don't want to overstate the case, but there are places in uh, Kid A where you know the stuff that's happening on the synthesizers has a little bit of that kind of M.C. Escher feeling. Mm-hmm. These chord progressions that sort of do something and do it again and do it again, and then you actually... Um, you end up sort of back where you started, but you don't know how you got there. Hmm. Yeah, so I I actually... That's one of the things on re-listening I really like about the album is the the chord loops. Yeah. And they stay away from like very traditional kind of blues progressions Mm -hmm. or, you know, a lot of the chord cycles that people make fun of when they do those. Here's all the songs that use those same four chords. A lot of the chord progressions that uh, you hear over the beats or the ambient sounds on Kid A are are sort of, they have a twist in them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said, I I keep thinking of those M.C. Escher staircases where you think you're still, you're going up and up and up, but you, through an an illusion, you end back where you were. Or like a Mobius strip where you sort of have something that, something that's folded in a particular way so that Uh its topology is odd. I listened through Kid A to find examples of those chord progressions Bob mentioned. And I think the best example is the introduction to the song Kid A. At first, it seems to be changing and progressing through the addition of percussion and keyboard. But the return to that original synth riff adds a circularity to this progression. What's interesting about Radiohead's use of electronic sounds is that it doesn't imitate the shimmering synths and feel-good melodies popular in electronic music. Instead, several of the soundscapes on Kid A feel desolate and apocalyptic. And Bob likens these to the isolated setting of Tristan and Isolde. If, if I listen to so- the songs from Kid A and I think about, well, where are, am I? I'm, I don't think I'm in front of my computer typing away, like checking yeah, my email. Sure. I'm far away from any human connection. 
Hmm. Now, you could definitely make an... Uh, that would make the album incredibly prescient, that it right. was sort of as early as the turn of the century, when everybody was pretty excited about the internet, mm-hmm. sort of prefiguring how alienating and isolating it would be. Yeah. Know? Yeah, that, that is, I think, fair. There are a few places on Kid A where you get sort of traditional rock anger, like the national anthem, you know, stick, you know, where you can yeah. see that they're kind of raised fist. But a lot of it just seems incredibly despairing and takes for granted that nothing's going to connect one person to another. Cause, yeah, because yeah, because that opera, you know, uh, is effectively about misconnection. Hmm. You know, even even if you have like the ultimate love, which is the love potion love, you can't make it work. Hmm. Not in this world. As we've mentioned before, it's possible that Johnny Greenwood didn't know all of the Wagnerian weight that this one chord carried. But as Bob demonstrates, understanding that history can enrich our appreciation of the song. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I don't think that this is conscious. Although I have to say, having listened to the album a, a few times, just trying to get ready, mm-hmm. it is actually strikingly arty. You know, I think that <laughs> I, I think it is sort of saying to you you need to think about these songs, right? I'm yeah. not going to just give it to you right on the surface. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about the lyrics, too, is that, at least according to, like, various articles about Kid A, is that Tom York didn't... He had a writer's block with a lot of the with a lot of the record, and so he would just draw things out of a hat, so you would get, like, really violent images next to really, like, random, mundane images. So I, I know that the, the the lyrics weren't printed in the liner notes so that you wouldn't just take them in isolation, but I do think it's interesting to make that comparison with the lyrics and the, yeah. and the, and the music. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, it, it doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not the only one to do this, and it doesn't always have to be because you have writer's block, although I guess it... Now that I think of the other stories I know, I guess maybe it is what, you know, because David Byrne did this uh, on an album like Speaking in Tongues. Yeah, uh, he was inspired by David Byrne. Yeah, That's why right. he did so, it. Yeah, in fact, that would be the, the classic example. And it's a technique yeah. that goes back to an equally arty set of forebears, um, you know, in French surrealism and William S. Burroughs, you know, the idea of cut-ups. Yeah. And John Cage. And so you can draw a line f- from that practice that the lyrics are going to be, in a sense, sampled yeah, from pre-existing language to people like John Cage and other experimental artists who also were really interested in synthesizers and mm-hmm. electronic music. Yeah. So, yeah, it the combination of cut-up speech or randomized speech and electronic analog sounds is, yeah, that's a that's been a good... A goodie, an oldie, but a goodie, uh, probably since the beginning of tape music. Yeah, you know, at the after World War II. That's a cool connection. Um, so we talked a lot about how this album is is prescient, sometimes with its lyrics, but also how is the sound of Idiotech or Kid A as a whole predictive of future music trends? Uh, okay. Let me let me just try to work this systematically. Sure. <laughs> um, what's interesting about Kid A, and we may this may be anticipating another possible question, and we can we can veer away from it and come back, is that Mm -hmm. although I think a lot of people read Kid A when it came out as somehow a reaction to electronic music, Mm -hmm. you know, as a generic kind of, I don't want to be over here, I want to be over here where the cool kids are, Mm -hmm. it actually doesn't sound that much like, it wasn't called EDM in that way back Mm -hmm. then, but what electronica, which is what we called it over here, Mm -hmm. sounded like. The irony is that a lot of electronica coming out, you know, people that 
guys in Radiohead would have known because they were other big British pop stars of the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the electronic dance music actually was very rocky at that point in terms of a lot of people using guitar samples or using uh, distorted sounds from synthesizers, buzzy, Mm -hmm. detuned synthesizers that function kind of like guitar riffs. So effectively, everybody was looking to get a synthesizer to do that thing from Creep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's easy to do. You just detune some oscillators and you, you know, you can make a kind of thing that sounds like a guitar riff. Or you can just sample guitar riffs. The guys, you know, Fatboy Slim and the Chemical Brothers were having huge success with these big pounding dance beats. And on top of it, you would have like an ACDC style guitar riff. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people in the U.S. probably in 1999 thought uh, dance music was. So this, this definitely sounded completely different than that. And certainly there are precedents for what they were doing. They probably were listening to stuff like Aphex Twin and, you know, other kind of ambient electronica. Mm -hmm. But that was a very fringy kind of style. Yeah. So I think looking back at 2018, it is of its time to some extent. You can point to other things. There, There was a revival right around the turn of the century of, I guess the best I could say is it's sort of an alternate history. I tend to think of it like an alternate history of electronic music where and this is this is going to be a like I said a left turn for the conversation <laughs> but where nobody really took ecstasy you know so uh-huh. there's a there's a kind of music the name I often associate with it is electro clash where right around 2000 the other thing which was happening a lot was people going back to the sound of say late 70s early 80s kind of kraut rock and dark berlin style kind of yeah, we dance now. <laughs> you know, the sort of Dieter, you know, the stuff that, that gets satirized and, you know, uh, Mike Myers does his Dieter character. Now is the time on Sprockets when we dance, you know. Sure. So that sound, which had been completely wiped out of music history by the big rave explosion of, of the late 80s and 90s, people started to get interested in that again. What if we could go back to that moment when everybody was listening to Gary Newman and Front 242 and sort of industrial, this sort of dark industrial sound and and bring that back? Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of pretty direct rejection of the loved up kind of everybody so happy, you know, kind of house music that people have been listening to. Mm. And... That music, if it was trying to get that 70s, early 80s feel, would often go back to analog synths as a kind of a signifier for, let's remember what it was like before all of that ravey stuff happened. Hmm. And it does seem like Kid A is doing some of the same thing. Yeah. So, again, I'm not, uh, I haven't completely argued why it prefigures things in the future, but I think it does, it does catch some of the, In some ways, it's very different than the kind of electronica that had come right before it. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a way, it's right at the edge of an alternate history of electronic music, of electronic dance music, which has turned out to be much more influential. Okay. Right? So that, uh, you know, Fatboy Slim is still great at a a party or a bar mitzvah, you know, to like (laughs) rock the floor. But that style of very heavy beat-driven, you know, kind of, big fun samples of rock music it's people aren't really doing it and 
you're much more likely to hear in the sound. I mean, I would say if you think about what hip-hop sounds like now, mm-hmm. you hear a lot of the kind of slightly distorted, chorus-modulated mm-hmm. electric piano sound like at the very beginning of the album. Mm-hmm. That sounds like you would hear that in any number of sort of slightly experimental or arty R&B mm-hmm. tracks, you know, The Weeknd or somebody. So there's a way that they their album is not funky, really it's not slinky it's very white which is nothing and you know why not but (laughs) the way they put these slightly off kilter late 70s early 80s sounding keyboard loops Mm -hmm. up against pretty much anything they wanted yeah i think it was very influential or if it wasn't influential it was anticipating a a similar discovery that a lot of people who we would classify as r&b now, hmm. sort of Afro-diasporic kind of pop music, are doing now, hmm. like in the last, say, five years. Yeah. Can you think of an example? Of well, I, I think, like I said, I would. I mean, there's something of that in somebody like Childish Gambino, you know, or um, like I said, The Weeknd, where you get a set of textures, you know, a very high-pitched voice, like that falsetto voice that yeah. Tom York does, mm-hmm. and cool, almost cold synthesizer sounds which for all the world could you think might have come out of a 1970s like yacht rock record or something you know okay. the last you know late 70s analog thing or steve like a stevie wonder song you know mm-hmm. somebody who's in the 70s working at a keyboard with analog synths those those combinations you add a little rapping <laughs> and um more of a sexy feel and mm-hmm. you've got a huge range of contemporary entertainment music so I think something that came into the to the mainstream as a sort of very arty gesture hmm. has become kind of mainstream. Yeah. I just have two more questions for you. What do you make of the song's title? Like, how do you interpret it? Idiotech. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that's very interesting. Idiotech rhymes with discotheque. Yeah. Right? And so, sure, you could argue it's a idiot discotheque. Mm-hmm. But idiotech also sounds like idiolect. In other words, like, which, like... Idio is 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 idiot, mm-hmm. but it also is the root of words like idiom and idiomatic. Mm-hmm. In other words, it means unique to one person. Sure. So in in linguistics, you talk about you have dialects, right? You mm-hmm. and I are speaking in a dialect because there's two of us. But one could say, well, the way that Bob Fink talks is an idiolect. Okay. You know, it's his own speech. And tech could also just be technology, right? So it's a, it's a very clever, you know, portmanteau word that could be pushed one way to sort of be an ironic statement about dance music. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, idiot's a discotheque and it, you know, dancing on the edge of the volcano, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a nice, ambiguous word. Yeah. And, and probably, like everything else in the album, uh, susceptible of multiple contradictory readings. Although you can interpret the title in a variety of ways, a few quotes from interviews with Tom seem to support the dancing on the edge of the volcano image. In an interview for Wired in 2001, Tom said the song's pulsating rhythm was an attempt to capture that exploding beat sound where you're at the club and the PA is so loud, you know it's doing damage. In another interview for BBC Radio 1 in 2000, Tom revealed that the lyrics for Idiotech are not as random as other Kid A tracks. Tom did draw phrases out of a hat, but he said that, quote, each line in the song, they're the lines that kept me awake at night for about a month, close quote. So it's no wonder Idiotech sounds urgent and nightmarish. 
Not only does it reference an impending ice age, people hiding in bunkers, and scaremongering politicians, but it also mimics the feeling of fear through its relentless, heart-pounding beat. As I said earlier, Radiohead recorded a score of songs during the Kid A sessions. But rather than release them all as a double album, they released half of them on Amnesiac, eight months later. Tom said the band split the work into two albums because, quote, they cancel each other out as overall finished things. They come from two different places, I think. In some weird way, I think Amnesiac gives another take on Kid A, a form of explanation. Kid A has a bit more of of distance and amnesiac you're more in the fold you're more I guess they said in the woods Mm, Um, yeah and again the visual representation of the song um, in that being submerged underwater you do you feel like you're being moved through this world almost engulfed by this initial jumping into the river this is Jessica Schwartz assistant professor of musicology at UCLA School of Music. She's talking about the music video of Pyramid Song, which is the other track we'll discuss in this episode. Jessica first heard Radiohead through, you guessed it, Creep. It wasn't until Radiohead started experimenting with different sonic textures that she revisited their music. So that progression of Radiohead from uh, a more standard, I I would say, rock band to a much more experimental group uh, mm-hmm. that eschewed a number of rock instruments or continued to play them, but also switched it up for uh, different instrumentation and, and different sounds, um, metrical ambiguity and complexity, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I became interested through a lot of uh, conversations around around the Kid A and Amnesiac time, okay. I think, which is one of the reasons uh, that I was interested in discussing the song. Like Idiotech, Pyramid Song has a rich history, both sonically and culturally. Tom began writing Pyramid Song after visiting an art exhibit about the ancient Egyptian underworld in Copenhagen. He performed a version of the song for the first time at the Tibetan Freedom Concert in 1999. He introduced it as Egyptian Song. In this version, it's missing one of its most salient components, the string section, which was performed by the Orchestra of St. John's in Dorchester Abbey in Oxfordshire. The jazz swing of the strings demonstrates another source of inspiration for this song, Charles Mingus's Freedom. Mingus is one of the most renowned jazz musicians and a leading advocate of collective improvisation. In an interview for Mojo, Tom said, Pyramid Song is me being totally obsessed by a Charlie Mingus song called Freedom, and I was just trying to duplicate that, really. Our first version of Pyramid even had all the claps that you hear on Freedom. Unfortunately, our claps sounded really naff, so I quickly erased them. What I hear, I mean, I can hear the the swung jazz feel Mm -hmm. in terms of that. I can also hear, obviously, when the drums or the percussion comes in, the acoustic bass comes in, Mm -hmm. and we have that more jazz feeling that that picks up and and gives that grounding, in a way, to the song. It Mm -hmm. almost makes you reflect on the previous part of it. So in a way, the jazz performance elements almost ground the 
ungrounded sections hmm. um, rhythmically. And you do, you have that clear percussive aspect. There's also, I think, within Charles Mingus's uh, jazz approach in terms of, of free jazz. And I think that a kind of, again, notion of freedom, freedom of creative play and interpretation is part of jazz. It's also part of this song. Hmm. So there are actual musical elements, but I think a larger feel of the song um, can be considered in terms of jazz performance as well. This freedom of interpretation Jessica mentioned can be found in two specific aspects of the song. In its rhythm, which is notoriously difficult to notate, and in its lyrics, which are brimming with allusions to history, religion, and literature. In the lyrics, Tom talks about jumping into a river and swimming with black-eyed angels. A moon full of stars and astral cars floats above them. All his past and futures surround him. And they're all going to heaven in a little rowboat. There are not many lyrics in this song, right? Yeah. mm -hmm. So the sparseness of the lyrics means that they can be really loaded. And I think that the tension of of the past and the future also speaks to that, the liminal space, whereas that maybe our life here is part of a liminality, Hmm. um, part of a a larger temporality. um, And... I would kind of wonder, and and maybe I can riff on this, like, what did you think about the Black Eyed Angels? Because really what's coming to my mind is this figure that I saw on Genius Lyric, you know, (laughs) and it's this picture of a drawing. So Uh it's almost a transcription, and it's difficult for me to move past what people were saying in terms of what they represented. Sure, yeah. So... I was kind of going back to thinking, okay, well, he wrote this after seeing an exhibit about Egyptian uh, mythology and, like, Egyptian burial rites. And so I thought they might be spirits, like spirits that you would see in the afterlife. Um, I also thought a little bit of... Yeah, but, I mean, a lot of people pointed to Dante's Inferno and and Mm -hmm. the references. Yeah. And as I was just saying, that kind of liminality and how this rung that we're in, you know, might be part of that, um, where we only have such a capacity of freedom, you know, the whole idea of, of, of the angel of death, hmm. um, we just had Passover. And so I was thinking yeah. of the band of evil angels, you know, and oh, yeah. thinking of Moses and the Israelites and, and, yeah. um, and Egypt and everything and, and escapes from, from bondage. Yeah. So mm-hmm. those were the things that I was thinking about, but that was also meshed with a certain cultural perspective sure. that again was... I don't want to say was intention with, but was divergent from what I had been reading mm-hmm. in um, in these different posts. Jessica demonstrates that these illusions could refer to a multitude of sources. If we have learned anything about Radiohead so far, it's that they take pride in ambiguity. So naturally, these ambiguous images of the life cycle or an in-between place between life and death are reinforced by the song's enigmatic rhythm. If you look on the internet, you'll find several interpretations of how to notate this rhythm. Our past guest, David Bennett, made an entire video about this. The rhythm is actually symmetrical. It's a bit like a pyramid, made of two dotted crotchets, a minimum, and then another set of two dotted crotchets. Or you could think about it in quavers as three, three, four, three, three. So you can see there the symmetry. 
This repeating two-bar rhythm actually acts quite a lot like a clave, which is an idea I've talked about in previous videos. Clave is a Latin American technique when a short one or two-bar rhythm is repeated throughout the entire piece to underpin it to glue it all together. So Pyramid Song has this repeating two-bar rhythm that acts like a clave throughout the whole song. And interestingly enough, this clave is actually just a slowed down bossa nova rhythm. I highly recommend watching the entire video if you want to understand it fully. But basically, David is saying that the song is comprised of two symmetrical bars of music. Two dotted quarter notes, each equivalent to three eighth notes. Two quarter notes that are tied, equivalent to four eighth notes total. And two more dotted quarter notes. Three, three, four, three, three. A fan noticed that these beats, when translated into shapes, comprise a pyramid, with three lines making a triangle and four lines making a square. Triangle, triangle, square, triangle, triangle. It's easier to understand if you see this written out, so I'll post a diagram on our Instagram page for reference. David goes on to say that although the rhythm can be notated as consistently 3-3-4-3-3, three, 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 the chord changes seem to undercut this consistency. So you might be thinking at this point, how can Pyramid Song have a repeating two-bar rhythm and yet still sound so disorientating and unrepeating? Well, that's because this two-bar rhythm is getting complicated by something else. It's getting complicated by where the chords change. So this is the two-bar rhythm that we've been talking about. And I've written it out twice here, so we've got four bars of it in total. See, where the chords change in the bar has a big impact on where we perceive the strong beats to be, where the accented beats should be. A beat where a chord changes on has more rhythmic impact than a beat where the chord stays the same. And the thing is, throughout Pyramid Song, the beat on which the chord changes keeps getting moved around, it's inconsistent. So even though the rhythm is the same every two bars, different beats keep getting accented, which keeps making it sound different. As a result, listeners accustomed to a standard 4-4 beat feel destabilized, unsure of where the measures begin or end. They lose their sense of time. It's about time and our perspectives of time. Right. And our orientation through time, hmm. our movement in the world through time, right? Yeah. It's almost baptismal kind of first, you know, jumping into the river and like, realizing and and seeing all these things anew okay and so in a way the destabilization of the music might lend to the destabilization that we're supposed to feel of that initial uh, immersion into the watery underground which yeah. is part of that video aspect this image of rebirth that jessica describes is bolstered by the circular arrangement of the lyrics the song consists of two verses repeated twice, once with just piano, and the second time with drums, bass, and strings. My last uh, question, just from what you said, though, is you were talking about the textures, and I was wondering, because when uh, Tom first presented the song, it was at the Tibetan Freedom Concert that you mentioned, and he played it just solo piano. What do you think the addition of the strings does to your experience of the song? I think in a very general way it mm -hmm. adds that otherworldly shimmery wavery feel yeah and it really layers the celestial feelings of that mm. right in the mention of heaven yeah and i think 
that textural component is really important for the recording, Mm -hmm. especially in ways that allow the listener to become engulfed, immersed in that expansive feel. Yeah, no, because as as you were saying that, I was reflecting on how, I mean, the lyrics, he repeats the same thing twice, but the first time it has a different impact than the second time. And I feel like it's because the second time they have that crescendo, but they also add the strings. Yeah. So there is a sense of like moving forward just somewhere else. Yeah, that's cool. When Jessica entered the booth for our interview, she had a thick stack of notes for reference. She said that it was just a sample of the conversation about Pyramid Song, from academic essays to fan theories and that it demonstrates the investment fans have in Radiohead songs, even 18 years later. She also said that this tendency to revisit Pyramid Song echoes the circularity of the song itself. Again, as that rebirth of its own self uh, through its repetition, right? Hmm. So it's almost people are allowing it to perform what it's doing within itself. So you have the interesting circularity and the journey that goes and goes and goes which yeah is fascinating no that that is interesting to think about it from like that meta perspective where it's like we are continually coming back to the song and like for different meanings or different interpretations but it's like even as we move forward in time we're like drawn back in our next episode we will address the circularity as it relates to a moon-shaped pool and the music video for daydreaming because both the album and video suggest a similar desire to revisit the past if only to understand and find closure in the present. You've been listening to Fake Plastic Podcast. Fake Plastic Podcast is an alternate Thursdays production with new episodes every other Wednesday. Share your thoughts with us on Instagram or Twitter at Fake Plastic Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you really liked this episode, Please leave a review and share with your friends, Radiohead fans or otherwise. It helps more people discover the show. I'm Savannah Wright. Thanks for listening.